as we begin, let's think about that last hymn that we sang together, the song titled Complete in Thee. The lyrics go like this, complete in thee, no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and I am now complete in thee. Complete in thee, no more shall sin, thy grace hath conquered reign within. Thy voice shall bid the tempter flee, and I shall stand complete in thee. Complete in thee, each want supplied, and no good thing to me denied, since thou my portion, Lord, will be. I ask no more, complete in thee. Dear Savior, when before thy bar all tribes and tongues assembled are, among thy chosen will I be, at thy right hand, complete in thee. And listen to the refrain. He says, Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified, Salvation wrought, thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Friends, is that your heart this morning? Lord, make me complete in thee. Brothers and sisters, to be complete in Christ is to have only Jesus and to need only Jesus. Justified, oh blessed thought. The most blessed and complete person in the world is the one who is assured that their eternity is secure in the beloved. Is that the completion? that you desire this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 18. Verse 9 through 14 will be our text for this morning. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 511. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse... 9. God's word says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, 
saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This passage presents a second consecutive parable about prayer. But the theme in this one has changed from the other one before it. Remember, a parable is a story or an illustration that Jesus uses that are often tangible and often in, in order to communicate a spiritual truth. It is more than a, likely not a story that actually happened, but is used by Jesus to unveil the spiritual reality in the heart of his listeners. The attention here in this parable is not on eschatology, which is the theology of the end times, which is what our previous parable was on, but on anthropology, or the theology of man, and soteriology, the theology of salvation. This well-known parable shares several stylistic similarities with the parable that comes right before it. Both parables contain two characters. Jesus introduces both with a moral to be taught. That's in verse 1 and in verse 9. And concludes both with an authoritative moral to be taught. That's in chapter 18, verse 8 and verse 14. And both depict people praying. So prayer is important, not because either parable is specifically about prayer, but because prayer lays bare the human heart. And Jesus is concerned with the heart. Both passages remind readers that God knows the difference between a parade of righteousness and the intention of the heart. Several parables of Jesus deal with this same theme, all of them depicting sinful, despised, or outcast people being justified over outwardly righteous people. These parables include those of the two sons. You can find that in Matthew chapter 21. The two debtors, Luke 7, verses 41 through 44. The good Samaritan, in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. The great banquet, Luke 14. The prodigal son, in Luke 15. Very often in the Gospel of Luke... He will give attention to those who in society would have been considered on the fringe. They're not central to society. Just think about the fact that, that the Gospel of Luke is the only one that gives so much attention to Christ's birth. And Matthew does as well, but Luke gives most attention in how it came to be. That the angel appeared to a woman who was to give birth to a son, though she was a virgin. Also consider that this is the only gospel that talks about who the angels appeared to, the shepherds. They were out in the fields by night. Shepherds were not your social elite. They were out in the field watching sheep. And Matthew is the gospel that gives the story of the wise men who came to visit Christ. And this pattern is repeated throughout the book of Luke, talking about those who would be on the, the fringe of society. It's also important for us to know that this parable, or where this parable falls in the book of Luke. So in chapter 13, verse 22, 
we see that Jesus started journeying toward Jerusalem. And in chapter 19, verse 1, he enters Jericho. And in chapter 19, verse 11, the text says that he was near Jerusalem. And you can see this continual moving toward Jerusalem in chapter 19, verse 28, and then laying his eyes on Jerusalem in 1941. So from the middle of chapter 13 to the end of chapter 19, roughly the end of chapter 19, Jesus is working his way to Jerusalem with the establishment of the new covenant, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, and the crucifixion in sight. In our parable, it falls toward the beginning of chapter 18. So what is the purpose here? So before we, with all this information in mind, before we get through this or get into this, what is Jesus seeking to communicate through this parable? I'd like to say first that this is not a parable about prayer. Though prayer is contained in the parable before ours and makes up a large portion of the parable that we are in today, it's not about prayer. This is also not a parable about humility. Jesus ends the parable by saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Though Jesus ends the parable in that way, humility is not the central theme of the parable. The central idea in this parable launches off in verse 9 and ends, lands, close to the beginning of verse 14. Verse 9 reads this way, He also told them this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The target audience is the key to this parable. And Jesus lays out for us right here who this parable is for. This parable is for those who trust in themselves. Why? Because they think that they are righteous. And the product of that trust is that they treat others with contempt. The central issue, friends, is not trust nor is it treating others with contempt. It is that the original audience and we are all prone to self-righteousness. We are all prone to think higher of ourselves than we ought. This parable addresses that sin. Self-righteousness. The belief that we have within ourselves the ability to gain God's approval. That if we do all the right things and busy ourselves with all the right effort, we can somehow gain God's attention because of our laborious, arduous self-righteousness. Friends, we all have this tendency. Every one of us. If I go to church, this will happen. If I seek to obey the Bible and and everything that it commands me to do, God will be pleased with me. If I marry the right person, 
I read the Bible every day, if I'm a religious man in my prayer life, if the pastor likes me, if I get the position in the church that I want, if I become a deacon, if I become an elder, if I serve the church in a specific way, God will be pleased with my effort. Friends, we get caught in this thought that if we only dress nicer, look better, feel cleaner, we will soon be beautiful enough to merit the attention and affection of God. Michael Reeves puts it this way. When our righteousness and acceptance before God is dependent on our performance, the worry will always be whether we have performed sufficiently well. Seasons of success-fueled pride are usually punctuated with moments of uneasy, sometimes crushing doubt. Self-reliant Christianity is workaholic. Hamster wheel Christianity. And that can never be a contented place. Beloved, by trusting in ourselves, we are doubting God. Friends, we don't, need, we don't need religion. We need redemption. We need redemption in Jesus Christ. Religion is for those who think they can save themselves. Redemption is for those who know they can't. It is self-improvement versus repentance, which is how Jesus ends the bulk of this parable in verse 14. This man went down to his house justified. Friends, the cornerstone of this text is that word, justification. How can a man or woman be righteous before a just God? This is the final question and most crucial question everyone on the face of this planet must answer at one phase of their life. How am I justified before God? Justification by faith alone is the rock of Gibraltar in the church. It is the linchpin of a Christianity when God imputes his grace to those who would believe in him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The doctrine by which the church stands or falls. We don't need an infused righteousness which is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Teaching that we are more and more justified by more and more acts of grace. We don't need to grow in righteousness in order to be justified. We need to be declared righteous and justified by status, not by progress, or we will never reach it. Beloved, it is good news that Jesus came into the world as a babe. It is good news that he went to the cross. It is good news that we have forgiveness in Christ. That Christ himself is the joy of life. But the pinnacle, friends, the paramount of good news is that Jesus Christ met the demands of the law for us. Jesus became sin. 
who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He, the just, became the justifier of the ungodly. The gospel, which was realized by his birth, summarized by his life, capitalized by his death, and finalized by his resurrection, is that God met the demands of God perfectly. Beloved, God satisfied God. And you and I are now the beneficiaries of that satisfaction. You and I receive the gifts of the righteous work of Christ for us. Aren't we thankful that we serve a God that doesn't, sell, that doesn't save self-righteous people who work, but ungodly people who believe? As Jesus Christ was marching his way to the cross, we ought to view this text in the shadow of the cross. Perhaps the connection with the previous passage is not just prayer, but vindication from God. What person does God vindicate? This parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector supplies the answer. Humility before God and confidence in his mercy. Not our own merit brings acceptance from God. So friends, our trust cannot be in our righteousness, for we have no ground for self-exaltation. None. So we can only ask for, cling to, and depend on the mercy of God for broken sinners in desperate need of exaltation through God's justifying grace. This contrast is presented through two representatives, the proud self-righteous person, and the humble, contrite person. So let's look at this parable together. The setting of the parable is in verse 10. So read verse 10 with me. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. So first we need to understand these two characters in the story. So first we have the Pharisee. If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably have heard about these guys. And because we are, uh, they are the primary opponents of Jesus throughout the Gospels, they're often painted in an extremely negative light. But, because, but, but something we need to, to try to do this morning is to think like a first century Jew. Think with me for a second like a first century Jew. The Pharisees were not, or were one of the groups that emerged as a result of Israel's exile in Babylon. The other two groups were the Sadducees and the Essenes, both of which held significant spiritual influence in the common religious life of Israel at that time. But the Pharisees were the largest group and exercised the greatest influence over the ordinary Jewish people. Even the name Pharisees means separated ones or the pure ones. The reason for this is because they observed extremely high 
an extremely high moral code of conduct. They were chiefly concerned with obedience to God's law in everyday life and personal holiness rather than temple worship. They believed that Israel's conquest by the Roman Empire was a punishment by God for Jewish disobedience. The proper Jewish response was repentance and a return to individual and national obedience to God's will. They believed and accepted the whole Old Testament and believed in the reality of the spiritual world, life after death and the resurrection of the body. Now, if you were a first century Jew, you would have thought that this Pharisee was the righteous guy. He was the good guy. He was the man who went up to the temple and was pure. Even Josephus, a secular Jewish historian author, says that people regard the Pharisees as the most authoritative interpreters of the law. Pharisees were a big deal. But second, we have this other character. We have a tax collector. Now, because Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire, taxes were a complicated issue. Without getting too much in the weeds, tax collectors would not only have to collect the tax that Romans stipulated, but they would also add a surcharge to meet their own expenses, an additional charge over which they had total control. And for this reason, they would, often be, they would often overcharge those that they went to tax. And they were known as thieves who had the authority to lawfully steal money. In most of the empire, this job went to wealthy Romans who were designated publicans. They would, in turn, hire others to do the actual collection. Because these men, who were hired by Rome were Israelites, they were Jewish, they were not seen as just thieves, but were also considered traitorous scum. No one liked them at all. And remember, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, was a tax collector. Those who turned their backs on their own people and sided with Rome to squeeze dry the wealth of Israel. That's how the Jewish people would have viewed a tax collector. Now, beyond understanding these two characters, we also need to see some similarities between these two people. Right? Similarities? That's kind of interesting. Similarities being that they both went up to the temple that day. And second, friends, they both prayed in the temple. They both went up to the temple and they both prayed. And friends, I think it's important for us uh, to realize, for our own spiritual wisdom and discernment, that not everyone comes to worship with the same motive. Not everyone comes to worship with the same motive. Friends, there are so many reasons why people go to church. And regrettably, many of those reasons are wrong reasons. Let me name five, real quick. Number one, Many people come to church because they think that they're going to be closer to God or that they might become a better person because they go to church. Number two, so that their children will have a moral foundation, not necessarily focused on themselves, but on their children. Number three, your family's religious traditions or because it's the right thing to do. Number four, 
because you feel obligated to go. Or number five, maybe you feel obligated because you are trying to please someone in your family, maybe a spouse or a parent. Now, anytime someone comes to church, friends, it's a good thing. It's always a good thing to come to church. It's always better to come to church than to not. And if you're a visitor, friends, if you're a visitor here, thank you for coming to CCBC. Thank you for darkening our doors and and gathering with us this morning. But CCBC, church, we should pray that our Sunday morning gatherings would be so clear regarding the gospel, our commitment to one another, and our majestic God that we serve with gladness, that visitors would soon understand that we are not here to play games. We are here to get real with a real God. So why did the Pharisee go to the temple that day? So let's look at his prayer, verse 11 and 12. Let's look at his prayer together. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. We need to make a few observations before we we just move on. So first, the text says that that the Pharisee was standing by himself. We need to understand that standing and lifting up your hands during prayer was a normal posture. It was actually very normal for that time. So there's nothing odd about that per se. You can actually go to verse 13 and see as well that the tax collector was standing as well. Number two, look at the way he starts his prayer. So the second thing, look at the way he starts his prayer. He says, God, I thank you. Isn't that a great way to start your prayer? It is. It's a great way to start your prayer. He actually doesn't start his prayer in a bad way. He shares that he is thankful and who he's thankful to. Actually, starting his prayer with thankfulness is a pattern from the Psalms, isn't it? Psalm 100 verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. He was actually doing that. So as the psalmist says in verse 104 or verse 100 verse 4, he was actually taking that to heart here. The third thing we need to notice, though, is this. What is he thankful for? He says that I am not like other men. The fourth thing he says is ways that he is not like other men. Look at the way that he lists this. He says extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. Guys, the fifth thing we need to notice is the actions that he does do that other men don't. The text says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now the five first person pronoun, I's, in this passage reveal the self-centeredness of this Pharisee. As you read it, it really isn't much of a prayer at all, if you think about it. It's not much of a prayer. Rather than thanking God for what God has done for him, the Pharisee arrogantly brags to God 
about his own moral purity and religious piety. But let's take all these things as they stand for a moment. By his own claim, he wasn't an extortioner, which is what tax collectors were known for doing. He wasn't unjust, he wasn't an adulterer, and he wasn't like this tax collector. Remember, they're the scum. He's not like that tax collector who came to the temple that day. Also, by his own claim, he fasted twice a week. And he gave tithes of everything he got. Everything. That's what the text says. To fast two times a week is more than what is required in any biblical standard. The Bible does not require that. The law prescribed to fast on the Day of Atonement only. You can find that in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus chapter 23. But he was doing it twice a week. Two times a week. Also, the law required that crops be tithed by farmers, but not the consumers who purchase those crops for food. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 27 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. So this Pharisee was going far above and beyond the call of duty than what was required by God in Scripture. He was holding himself to a standard that was written by men. And we can see in this passage, that it is simply, friends, it is simply pregnant with the Pharisees' egocentric arrogance. It's just oozing. We see all the smoke, all the things he didn't do, and all the things he did do, but where's the source? Where's the fire that's shooting off all this smoke? What is the Pharisees' real problem? Well, it's found there in that phrase that he says, I thank you that I am not like other men. He actually believed that he was not like other men. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. And do you see what he's doing in this prayer or this prayer? By working through all the merits in his prayer and walking God past the trophy case. The Pharisee not only heralds his good news to God, but puts God in his debt. Trusting in good works to save is like looking at God and saying, pay me what you owe. The Pharisee saw his achievements as abundantly fulfilling the law. So he believed that he was better than others. He was certain that he could approach God and almost demand justice as a matter of personal right. With his attempt to follow the letter of the law, the Pharisee did not obey the heart of the law, which was to love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength. In his desire to follow God's law, he showed himself to be a self-worshipping, Position-loving, ladder-climbing, attention-seeking religious man who had gained the world but had forfeited his soul. One of the cleverest tactics, friends, one of the cleverest tactics of the devil is that he will get you to stare at the sin of others. And he wants you to stare at their sin, causing you to define your righteousness in light of others' sin. 
He doesn't want us looking at sin through the eyes of holy justice. He doesn't want that. He wants us looking at our sin through the eyes of carnal men. It is at the end of that carnal road that Jesus said the words in chapter 7 of Matthew, didn't he? Matthew, 20, Matthew 7 verse 21 says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, friends, the words that no one wants to hear. I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. The Pharisee loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The Pharisee, friends, the Pharisee is a picture of man at his best. This is us at our best. Men at their best are dressed in all the trappings of morality with a heart of venom. Men at their best are men at best. The problem with the Pharisee in this parable is that he didn't know his own heart. Friends, without the grace of God, this is true of all of us. All of us. J.C. Ryle says this about self-righteousness. The true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. Once, let the eyes of our understanding be opened by the Spirit, and we shall talk no more about our own goodness. Once, let our eyes see that there is what there is in our own hearts, and what the law of God requires, and self-conceit will die. We shall say, and lay our hands on our mouths, and cry with the leper, unclean, unclean. You might remember in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, when he's before the Lord, he says, Woe is me! Woe is me! For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is a picture of when men come into God's presence. But these Pharisees were in God's presence, weren't they? The Pharisees, throughout the Gospels, didn't know who Jesus was. With their desire to see the kingdom of God established in Israel, they couldn't see that the kingdom of God had come. John Bunyan says this, he says, it is not a man's being under wrath, but his seeing it that moves him to come to Jesus Christ. Alas, all men by sin are under wrath, yet but few of that all come to Jesus Christ. And the reason is that they do not know their condition. In seeking to be righteous, the Pharisee broke 
both tables of the law. In his effort to obey the letter of the law, he broke the greatest commandment to love the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as a result, he didn't obey the second table either to love his neighbor as himself. It is from this heart posture, friends, that treating others with contempt comes. Personal pride and contempt of others are two sides of the same coin. Friends, we must be careful. We must be careful to make conclusions about someone too quickly. Just because we know where they work, what they support, how their kids behave, what political party they align with, what family they come from, who they have married, what town they are from, what they're interested in, and the list goes on. Anytime we say, how could he do? Or I can't believe they're, or don't they know that's, friends, we're simply or if we simply lump an entire people group into a certain category. Friends, we are subtly saying, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Beloved, we have to be very careful. Very careful. And pray for God's mercy to not treat others with contempt as a result of personal pride in our own hearts. In fact, next time we have those thoughts that come to mind, and they do, just know that it's just reflecting your heart. That's actually your pride speaking. Pray that we would be humbled and look at our own hearts before we look at others' hearts. But what do we see in this tax collector? So we see the Pharisee, we see his prayer. What about this tax collector? So let's read verse 13 together. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He and everyone in that temple that day knew he didn't belong there. That man did not belong there. What is a tax collector doing in the temple? More than likely, the tax collector was within eyesight of the Pharisee because the Pharisee actually refers to him in his prayer. And the Pharisee probably went into the temple, closer to the inner courts, while the tax collector stood outside a little bit. The text gives us three descriptions of this tax collector's posture. Notice number one, he was standing far off. Number two, he would not lift up his eyes to heaven. And number three, he beat his breast. The tax collector, he knew who he was in God's eyes. And he knew who God was in his eyes. And as a result, 
he knew his need. He had a sober view of himself. Looking upward was typical at this time while praying. So actually, if you were in the temple and you saw someone's eyes lifted up, it was actually very normal. But this man was too conscious of his unworthiness to do this. He couldn't lift his eyes up. His refusal to lift his eyes in prayer shows his utter acknowledgement of his own sin in approaching God in prayer. He personifies what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. He says, Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Like a child who is ashamed of their sin and unwilling to look their parents in the eye, he was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven in prayer. By standing far off, we see his guilt. By not lifting his eyes in prayer, we see his shame. And by beating his breast, we see his anguish. He struck his breast as one who felt more than he could express with words. Friends, picture this guy, this tax collector in the temple that day, knowing his own sin coming through the doors of that temple and not wanting to go too far because he felt it. He felt his sin. He knew his offense against God. With clenched fist and white knuckles, beating with blows of contrition upon his breast. You can imagine him continuing to beat his breast as he continues to acknowledge his transgressions against God who is altogether holy and just. This tax collector, this tax collector knew what it meant to scrape the bottom of the barrel. He knew what it meant to have everything and lack everything at the same time. He knew what it meant to sense the bruises of our sins and having a heart aware of sin's anguish and his need. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He offers no defense, no rationalization, no justification. He simply admits that he needs mercy. This is not the customary turn for showing mercy, but one descriptive of God's turning away his wrath through atoning sacrifice. It was temple talk. It was sacrifice talk. He may have even heard the word before. A related noun is rendered propitiation in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. In Greek, the tax collector does not refer to himself as a sinner, but the sinner, indicating both the degree of his awareness and of his sin. Friends, he doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Reminds, me of, reminds us of Paul. 
This man is not looking around for the approval of others. He is not concerned with looking at the sin of others. As far as he was concerned, he was the only man as bad as he was. This, friends, this is desperation. This is need. It's here we see this man's greatest need and our greatest need. Mercy. Mercy. We need an atoning mercy. A mercy that can wipe our slate clean before God. Friends, have you felt your need for mercy? Have you gained the world and yet forfeited your soul? Have you felt the bruising of your sin? Richard Sibbs says it is better to go to heaven bruised than sound to hell. Just because God's grace is free doesn't mean it's cheap. God's grace is not cheap. Psalm 51 Verse 16 through 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Remember, this is David. He says, You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Friends, have you known the brokenness of your sin? If you have, Don't let the gashes of your transgressions fester. Don't let them fester. But come to the great physician who can bring healing to your soul. Don't let the stripes on your back from your sin drive you away from Jesus, but to him. Let us be constant in going to him when we see our sin. Friends, the smallest glimpse of our sin may humble us like the tax collector and we may feel far off like he was that day. But let's not linger there. Let's not linger far off. Close the distance with God by going to the Father through the sacrifice of Christ. Let us go confidently because God rewards those who seek Him. Even sinners who need mercy. One of the most spiritually dangerous places for a Christian to be is when they have no distress over their sin. Friends, pray. Pray that God would bring a clear and strong light into the corners of our souls and accompany it with a spirit of power to lay our hearts low and to give us hands of faith to lay hold of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we must let this truth sink deep into our hearts. He that has learned to feel his sins has every reason to be thankful. Every person who has learned to feel their sins has every reason to be thankful.
We are never in the way of salvation until we know that we are lost, that we are ruined, that we are guilty, and that we are helpless. So how joyful it is for the man who is not ashamed to sit beside this guy, this tax collector. When our experience can compare with his, friends, when we, when we know the depth of our sin, when we feel the depth of our sin, and we have deep contrition over our sin, we can't lift our eyes to heaven, we beat our breast, then we can be sure and have hope that God has placed us in the school of faith. The Pharisee sought exaltation in this world, and the tax collector sought exaltation from God. So what conclusion does Jesus draw in this passage here? So read verse 14 with me. Jesus, in response, says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus declared to those around him who heard the parable the very thing they were not expecting to hear. The sleazy, dishonest, immoral tax collector went home justified, and not that Pharisee. Jesus establishing something that, he's establishing something that Paul would later make clear in Galatians 2. Galatians 2.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Only one of the men who went up to the temple that day, went down justified. Because only those who are humbled can be justified. That's why Jesus ends verse 14 the way he does. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers, brothers and sisters, our exaltation is our justification. Our exaltation is our justification. God gives what we cannot get. We get in trouble when we seek exaltation in anything other than what God has already promised. When we seek exaltation from God in this world, we are also showing ourselves and others that we are not satisfied with what God gives. God never promises to give us all the money we want or to give us a, a nice car or to give us an, a nice house, a big house, or to give us a family with no drama or to give our, us kids that have you know, perfect obedience records. But he does promise that all who humbly repent of their sins will be justified without exception. The exaltation we must seek from God is the exaltation that God has already promised in Christ through the gospel. So what does having a heart 
what does having a heart that knows how sinful we are? We know how sinful we are. And we have received unreserved mercy. What does a heart like that look like? Friends, we can say without hesitation, if you knew the half of my sin, you would not call me your friend. But God knows all my sin and he made me his child. So it doesn't matter what man says about me because the final word about my position has been given. Why should we fear when we are eternally secure? Why should we exalt ourselves before men when God has seated us with himself in Christ? Why should we seek acceptance from men in this world when we have been predestined for adoption in Christ Jesus? Why should we seek all the riches this world can afford when in Him we have received the inheritance? What does Paul say? Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. J.I. Packer says this, Justification is the judicial act of God pardoning sinners, accepting them as just, and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with him. This Justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness. His bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who is good, a God who is merciful. But Lord, we also thank you that you are a God who is just, a God who is holy, a God who is righteous, a God that is unwilling to let us go too far with our sin. Oh God, we thank you that you have given us mercy in Christ. And Lord, we pray now that if you, if there is any person in this room right now who does not know you, Lord, help them to know that if they repent of their sin, they can have this. If they turn away from their sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they can have justifying grace. Lord, I ask that you would lay us all low, that you may exalt us. In Jesus' name, amen.